If you would take out your Bibles this morning, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you one. We are beginning a study where we started last week in the Old Testament book of Judges, which is the sixth or seventh book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua and Judges. Judges is where we are. And we'll probably be for most of the rest of this year. I think every person here in this room, doesn't matter what kind of generation or age group you're in, you probably have some movies and characters from those movies from your past or your childhood that you grew up with that you you really remember. Maybe if you were like me, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And remember back then we didn't have DVDs. We had those VHS things. And if you were really cool, you had a rewinder where you take it out and put it in there and rewind the tape back to, how many of you guys remember those whole things? And, you know, there were some movies where when I was a kid, you just like watched them over and over and over again because you just loved these movies. And I was thinking about these this last week. You know, there was a couple of trios, movies that had, you know, a couple sequels after them that stick out to me. You might, you might remember the epic tale of Marty McFly and Back to the Future. Like, I loved those movies. And then another trio was the awesome, great, well-acted story of Daniel LaRusso and the Karate Kid. You might be wondering, like, how are you going to connect this to judges? Just wait. I was thinking about this this last week because if you remember back to Karate Kid, I'm going to do some spoiler alerts here. If you haven't watched them by now, like, come on, you know, it's 2024. But so in the movie, the Karate Kid, you know, in the first one, he moves from New Jersey and they end up in L.A. and Reseda. And, you know, he gets picked on and beat up and he ends up becoming the Karate Kid. And when I was a kid, you'd watch those movies and immediately after that, you'd go outside and beat each other up for like an hour. Till you were bloody, and you'd all th- thought you were ninjas. But in the movie, of course, the, the grand finale at the end, he has this great victory at the Hill Valley Martial Arts Tournament, and he wins, you know, the whole great, you know, Karate Kid. It's all awesome. But in the next movie, the next movie begins with a callback to the previous victory. The, the part two of Karate Kid opens with that exact scene of him winning the Hill Valley Tournament. And then part three, you know, he has this great victory at the end of part two in Okinawa. And so part three begins with a callback to the victory that is at the end of the last movie as well. So it's this callback of reminding you this great victory that he had. Now, in the book of Judges, it begins with a callback to the previous book. So Judges is the sequel. It's part two of the book of Joshua. And in Joshua, we have this awesome victory that takes place with the children of Israel, and specifically, one great man of God among the children of Israel, a man named Caleb. And then Caleb has a daughter that he gives to this man named Othniel. We, we studied this story back in, in Joshua chapter 15 in about September of last year, if you were with us. Well, Judges chapter 1 opens with a callback to that whole situation that took place there in that passage. So if you have your Bibles open to Judges chapter 1, we have just the perfect way for the director or the producer to plan this new sequel story, just like with Daniel LaRusso, just like with the Karate Kid, like reminding us of Israel's high point, their victory as they came into the promised land under Joshua and with Caleb. We read this, Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Now, after the death of Joshua, that's the the timing of this book. Joshua was the one who, after Moses, had led the children of Israel into the promised land, and they were victorious under his leadership, and they saw that they took their place in the land. They didn't fully take the land. In fact, Joshua had told them near the end of his life, there remains much of the land that needs to be possessed. But they had their stronghold in the land, and now they're going to, little by little, which is what God said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, little by little, you're going to take possession of the land and hold on to it. So after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked of the Lord, saying, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? The Canaanites were the people who mostly held the land. The land was called the land of Canaan. But it was promised to Joshua and to all the descendants of Abraham, as promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And so now many hundreds of years later, they come into the land of Canaan and they begin to take the possession that was theirs. God had given it to them. And so now they are in the land and Joshua is dead and the people gathered together, the heads of the tribes of Israel, there were 12 tribes, they gathered together and they said, who shall go up to, for us first against the Canaanites? And the Lord said, Judah. Now, this becomes an important part of the story because from this point on, we're going to see that the tribe of Judah among the children of Israel would become the primary or leadership tribe, which was 
predicted, prophesied hundreds of years earlier in Genesis chapter 49. God had promised that the Messiah was ultimately going to come through the line of Judah. We refer to him sometimes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the children of Israel are in the promised land, and it is from this base in the promised land that God is going to bring the Messiah, and God is going to bring redemption to the whole world, just as he had promised hundreds of years before. So now the children of Israel are there, and their first order of business after Joshua is dead, they go to God in prayer, the heads of the tribes of Israel, and they say, who should be the one to go up first? And God says, Judah, indeed I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah, verse 3, he said to Simeon, or the heads of the tribes of the, of the tribe of Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go up with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up, verse 4, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites into, and the Perizzites into their hand. Now, this is important because when the children of Israel were preparing to come into the promised land, they were very clearly the underdogs. They didn't have a well-trained army. They didn't have a lot of weaponry. They had not been experienced in battle for Decades, they'd been wandering in the wilderness and living in tents, and now they were coming into the promised land where the people that were there had been there for centuries, and they had great fortresses and cities built up. They had strong armies with chariots, and they knew how to fight and defend their territory. So it would be very improbable that the children of Israel, as this group of nomadic tent dwellers, would be able to come into the land and overtake these people who had a stronghold there. And the story of Israel taking over the land of Canaan is a story of God enabling his people to do something that they could not do in and of their own strength. So here they are in a similar situation. They've just begun to really take hold of the land. And God says, I want Judah to go up. And the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. This was one of the regions in that area. And they found Adonai Bezek. Adonai means Lord. So the Lord or ruler of Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites and Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. You go like, what in the world is that all about? (laughs) They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Well, Adonai Bezek, verse seven said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes uh, were cut off, were used to gather scraps under my table as I have done so God has repaid me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. What is going on here? Well, Adonai Bezek, Lord of Bezek, he had been a conquering king or ruler in that area, and he had great strongholds and great victories in battle. And when he would overcome somebody that came against him or that he went out to conquer, when they would take those people, they'd cut off their thumbs and they'd cut off their big toes. You go, why would they do that? So that they could never fight again. They could never hold a sword again. They could never run in battle again. So it was a way of basically hobbling them and making it so they could never fight Again, so Adonai Bezek had done that to 70 different rulers, and now it comes to his door. Now the children of Judah, verse 8, fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwell in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. And Judah went up against the Canaanites who dwell in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirath Arba. And they killed Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went up against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjah-Sefer. And then Caleb, there he is, this great man of God. We were introduced to him previously in the book of Numbers when Moses, before the children of Israel had come to the promised land or into the promised land, Moses sent 12 spies to go and spy out the promised land. You can read the story in Numbers chapter 13. And there was one spy from each of the 12 tribes and Among those spies were Joshua and Caleb. And the 12 spies, they return after 40 days of searching out the promised land, and they come and they share with the children of Israel all the report of the land, that it is a a good land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a great land. It's wonderful. But there are, 10 spies said, there are giants in the land, and they have strongholds, and there's no way that we in and of ourselves can overtake them. And when you think about it, the 10 spies were right. They were right in assessing the situation, but wrong in in the fact that they underestimated God. And Joshua and Caleb, they were the two faithful spies of the 12. They said, God has given them into our hands. Let's go up. But the people did not hear or listen to the minority report of Joshua and Caleb. They listened to the majority report of the 10 tribes and they were discouraged. 
And as a result of their discouragement, they would not trust God. And as a result of not trusting God, they did not go up into the promised land. Instead, they wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. And that entire generation, Joshua and Caleb's generation, they all died in the wilderness. Only Joshua and only Caleb were able to come into the promised land. Years later, when they were now in their 80s, they're able to come into the promised land and Joshua leads them in and Caleb also goes in with this fight. And now at 85 years old, we learned back in Joshua chapter 15 when we read this story previously, at 85 years old, we read that now Caleb takes these cities as his inheritance, fighting for them. And Caleb said, verse 12, Josh, Judges chapter one, whoever attacks Kiriath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa to wife and Othniel, the son of Kenez. He's gonna show up again in the story later on. Othniel, Caleb's younger brother's son, took it. And so Caleb gave Othniel his daughter Aksa to wife. Othniel's name means a lion of God. What a great name. Now it happened when she came to him, when Aksa came to Othniel, she urged Othniel to ask her father for a field. She wanted a blessing from her father. And he, or she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what, what do you wish? And she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the, low, the land of the south, give me the, also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper and the lower springs. Now this story, this is like a high point for Israel. It's told in Joshua chapter 15. It's retold here in Judges chapter one to set the stage. It is just like the way that the karate kid was set up, that you have the, the victory of Daniel LaRusso at the beginning of part two to remember what happened in the previous story. And so you might think when you read this, when you come to Judges chapter one and you read about their victorious entry into the land and Ju Judah going forward and Caleb and Othniel and Axel, you think like, oh, this is gonna be a great story of victory. Unfortunately, that's not how it's going to play out. As we're going to see, and as I shared last week in my introduction to the book of Judges. Now, the children of the Kenite, verse 16, Moses' father-in-law went up from the city of Palms, which is the city of Jericho, with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went to, and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and they utterly destroyed it. And so the name of the city was called Hormar. Hormah. Also Judah took Gaza, sound familiar? And its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. These are the chief cities, three of the five chief cities of the Philistines. We'll run into them some more later on. They took Gaza, they took Ashkelon. So the Lord was with Judah, verse 19. The Lord was with Judah. So as the book of Judges open, we are reminded of a high point. We're reminded of a victory for the children of Israel. And it sets the stage for what we're going to see as we go through this book over the next weeks and months. And as I said previously, I can think of no better way to direct and produce the sequel to the book of Joshua here in the book of Judges than this. What a wonderful way that the children of Israel begin. We, we see it there in verses one and two. Look back there again real quick. After the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked of the Lord. Would you reach over and highlight in your neighbor's Bible those words? They asked of the Lord, saying, who shall be first to go up against the Canaanites and fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. This is a reminder to us at the opening of the book of Judges that Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan their taking of the possession that God had promised to their father Abraham hundreds of years prior was all by the hand of God. It was not by their own ingenuity. It was not by their own power. It was not by their own plan or strength. The book of Joshua that we studied previously last year was a story of Israel's obedience and their faith leading to victory and blessing. Now, there were times in the book of Joshua, if you were here with us in the story, where they, they did not trust in the Lord or they did not seek the Lord and they would fail. But those stories were few in the book of Joshua. For the most part, the book of Joshua is the story of the children of Israel faithfully pursuing and following God, obediently seeking him. And as a result, they experience blessing and victory. Just as God had promised, when the book of Joshua opens, before the children of Israel came into the promised land, God spoke to Joshua and Joshua relayed the message to the people of Israel. And he said to them, God has told us, be strong and very courageous. And it was not be strong and very courageous to fight. 
It wasn't be strong and very courageous to wield the sword. It was be strong and be very courageous to observe to do all of the law which Moses commanded you. Do not turn from the right hand or to the left from God's law because when you do that, God told Joshua and Joshua relayed to the people, when you obey God's word and you do not turn to the right hand or to the left, you will make your way prosperous and you will be successful. And the book of Joshua is the story of the children of Israel applying those truths and experiencing God's blessing and his provision, his protection, and his, his, his rest that he ultimately gives to them. Be strong and very courageous. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, God said in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. And though there were a few low points, as I mentioned in the book of Joshua, it is the story of obedience and faith leading to victory and blessing. If you're taking notes this morning, point number one, I've talked about this many times before over the last several years. The Deuteronomic principle, the Deuteronomic equation, what Deuteronomy, the, the book of the law teaches us, the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic equation portrayed in Joshua is faith plus obedience equals victory times blessing. Now, you don't need to raise your hand this morning because I think I know the answer, but how many of you would like to have victory multiplied by blessing in your life? Man, I, I think that's what I want. Victory multiplied by blessing. That's what I would be looking for. And, and what the scriptures teach in the book of Deuteronomy and what is illustrated in Joshua and then further illustrated in other books of the Old Testament is that faith plus obedience equals victory times blessing. We see that in this passage. It is the simple rule of sowing and reaping. As Paul mentioned in the New Testament book of Galatians, if you sow to the spirit, that is, you plant in your life that which is revealed by the Spirit of God, his truth, his principles, his word. If you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap life. But if you sow to the flesh, you plant things that are of this world and of your own carnal nature, nature you shall of the flesh reap destruction. If obedience, then blessing. That was the predicted promise of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28, you can go read it later. There in that passage, God says through Moses to the children of Israel, if you do this and this and this in obedience of my law, then you will experience blessing times blessing times blessing. But as is also seen in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the opposite is true as well. The passage also speaks of punishment. It speaks of cursing to those who disobey or rebel or turn away from God's law. If faith and obedience lead to victory and blessing, then it is also true, the counterpromise that unfaithfulness and disobedience lead to defeat and cursing. And Joshua was the story of the children of Israel taking faith and obedience and putting those things together and experiencing victory and blessing. But point number two, if you're taking notes, the Deuteronomic equation portrayed in Judges is disobedience plus compromise plus rebellion equals defeat times cursing. It's very clear. It's an if-then conditional equation, the Deuteronomic principle, the law of sowing and reaping. It is seen throughout the scriptures, and it's something that we can observe in reality as well. But, but how would this happen to the children of Israel? I mean, we have this great high point that Judges starts off with. How could they possibly into this place of defeat and cursing? How could they find themselves in a place of disobedience, compromise, and rebellion? What would bring them to this place? Well, there's a couple things that we should take note of right in the opening chapter of Judges that begin to answer that question. The first thing that we should take careful note of, and I, I kind of highlighted a little bit, but I want you to key in on it, is how the children of Israel began in this passage. After the death of Joshua, the children of Israel asked of the Lord. They gathered together as a nation, the heads of the tribes from Simeon and Judah and all the other tribes in Israel, they gathered together probably at the place called Shiloh where the tabernacle was or Gilgal at that time where the tabernacle was and they asked God, what do you want us to do? They sought the Lord. And if, if you want to experience victory in your life, then you need to apply this reality and this truth as well. The best first step in any endeavor to experience the victory and blessing of God is to go to God in prayer and seek him. And this is not just an Old Testament principle. This is a New Testament principle as well. 
In the New Testament book of James, the apostle James writes in James 4, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and we'll spend a year there and we will buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen to you tomorrow. For what is your life? Is it not just a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away? So instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. The Apostle James says, this is how you ought to live. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are seeking to be an obedient disciple, which is just a faithful follower of Christ, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. And I can look back in my life, and maybe you can look back in yours, and I can see many times where I've experienced victory and blessing and other times where I've experienced defeat and maybe you could call it cursing, difficulty, challenges. And so many times I can see a direct line correlation to my prayerfulness or lack of prayerfulness as preparation for the things that I'm stepping into. You ought to say, if the Lord wills. Well, how will we know what it is that the Lord wills, what he wants? Because... I know that there are many people who are Christians who are saying, I want to know what God's will is for my life. I think that's a really good place to be, but how will I know? Well, I love what Solomon wrote 3,000 years ago in a passage that you would do very well to memorize if you haven't memorized it already, but you've probably heard it if you've been around church for a while. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Solomon says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. The children of Israel did this in Judges chapter one. They sought the Lord and they say, what do you want us to do? We're acknowledging you in our ways and God directed their path. Point number three this morning, the path to faithful obedience begins with a faithful and prayerful pursuit of God. A faithful and prayerful pursuit of God. In my message last week, if you were here, you might remember it. If not, you can watch it on our YouTube channel. I ended the message last week with five things that I think that you and I could do in our lives or as a church that would help begin to move our culture in a direction towards blessing. And this right here is, I would say, like a, a pre-point to those five things. This is like the, the starting point. I, I said last week that we need to renew our minds through the scripture. We need to endeavor to be salt and light in a dark and distasteful world. We need to create Christ-centered and countercultural communities of faith. That's the church. We need to engage and invest in the lost generation. Those are people that we know, family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors who are not walking with God or don't know God. And finally, we need to engage the culture persuasively with the gospel. But a, a pre-step, to those five things is to seek God in prayer. Every great endeavor for God must begin with seeking God in prayer. And far too frequently in my life and maybe in yours, and I've observed in many Christians and many churches, we don't make prayer the first thing we do. It often is like the 21st thing we do. And I wonder how much easier might the path be or the task be if we went to God early in prayer. I certainly can look back in my own life and I see points in my walk with the Lord where I, I found myself feeling like I was just running into a brick wall over and over and over again, trying everything in my strength and my ingenuity to figure it out and fix it, only to finally say, well, maybe I should pray. And then it's as if immediately the thing that I was banging my head against seems to dissolve as God, by his power, is able to break down strongholds through prayer. Prayer is a mighty weapon. I think we know this theoretically or theologically for a lot of Christians, but have we actually practiced prayer, going before God? A path towards blessing, towards victory, begins with that faithful and prayerful pursuit of God and every path towards compromise, ending in disobedience and rebellion begins with many times you can have a direct line correlation to where you just stopped seeking the Lord. So 
we see for the children of Israel, how did they get to the point, what we're going to see later on in the book of Judges, where they are in constant defeat and they're experiencing the cursing of the Lord? How did they get to that point? Well, first we see that they sought the Lord in prayer, but then look at how that contrasts with the remainder of this passage. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. These chariots of iron, they're going to come up again later on in this passage in the book of Judges. They become a, a real snare for the children of Israel. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said, and then they expelled from there the sons of Anak. These were some giants that were in the land. But, verse 21, the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Israel, or the children of Benjamin, in Jerusalem to this day. Reading this, that they began to find difficulty in driving out those who were in the land, who were determined to stay in the land. I, I'm reminded of Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, where he says to them in Galatians chapter 5, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What, what stood in your way? They had chariots of iron, you know? The enemy was determined to stay in the land. They're strong. They're too big. Judges chapter 1, verse 27, the tribe of Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshane and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to remain in the land. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, nor did Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun, drive out the inhabitants. The Canaanites dwell among them and were put under tribute. The children of Israel would not drive out those who were inhabiting the land, and eventually they said, well, they're too hard for us to expel, and so, you know, we'll just put them to work for us. We'll put them under tribute. But that's not what God called them to do. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants. Verse 32, the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, but they dwelt among the Canaanites. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beshemesh and Beshanash, Anath were put under tribute to them. Verse 34, and the Amorites forced the tribe of Dan, the children of Dan, into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down into the valley, and the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Herez. Point, uh, point number four in your sermon guide, the long path to destruction and exile begins with minor degrees of compromise. It's just a, a little bit of sin. It's just this really small community or town over here. It's just an occasional failure. I mostly have this under control. I've got power over this. I can quit at any time. It doesn't control me. It doesn't master me. No one else knows about it. It's a private thing. It's not hurting anybody else. In that passage in Galatians where Paul said, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Just after that, he says, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And leaven in the scripture, which is yeast, it is often pictured as a type of sin. Just a little bit of sin allowed to remain in our lives can bring great destruction. We say, well, it's just a little thing. It's just this small little territory over there, this group of Philistines or Canaanites. It's no, no big deal. But God said, no, I want you to completely uproot and expel them from the land, to take full control of the land. How did the children of Israel end up in a place of defeat and cursing, as we're going to see in the book of Judges? It was one small compromise after another. How did the church in America lose its position of power and influence in the culture? It was one small compromise after another. It wasn't always the big, huge, major failure. Oftentimes, it's the little, small degrees of compromise where we stop doing this or we start doing one small thing. And over a period of time, these things stack up and they become a snare. How do we return? How do we fix this? Well, we're going to see that cycle in the book of Judges as well to answer that question. But the path into faithful obedience begins with faithful and prayerful pursuit of God. And then after that, you can begin to do the five things that I talked about last week, to renew your mind through the, spirit, the scriptures and to be salt and light in a dark and distasteful world and so forth. All of those things come after that. But, but this concept 
It's the same thing that Jesus would write to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven churches that were given by Jesus. And to the first church at Ephesus, a church that was a strong church and it had a great testimony of all these great things that they did. But they started to have little compromises. And one compromise led to another compromise to the point where they had left their obedience and their faithfulness to God whom they loved. And Jesus writes to them and he says, repent. Turn back to me is what repent means. And do the first works. Do the beginning things that you did at the very start. Repent and do the first works or else I'll come to you quickly and remove my presence from its place. I'll remove my presence from you. Now, Jesus' exhortation in Revelation chapter 2 was an exhortation to the whole church at Ephesus. And I, I think all of us could say, yes, the entirety of the church in America needs to hear that exhortation. The big C, capital C church needs to hear that exhortation. Repent and do the first works and return to the Lord. And, and maybe you will see Christians in the news or you'll read something about some big name pastor who does some big dumb thing. And you go, oh, that church, the church needs to repent. But we also need to think of this individually. We need to maybe go before the Lord and pray the prayer that David prays in Psalm 139 and say, search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Reveal to me if there's anything in my life that is hindering me from trusting in you or faithfully following you. Th this is what Christians for a long time have called the process of sanctification or growing in Christ's likeness. And it requires us to consistently and regularly go before the Lord and say, search me, O God, and see if there is in me any wicked way. And let me tell you something. I know from experience that is a hard prayer to pray. Because I would say at every point in my life where things do not seem to be going the way that I think they ought to, because I'm a child of God and I serve God and I'm a pastor and all these it's like. Things should be going better than this. I'm sure none of you have ever had that experience. But you find yourself in that place. Like, it just should be so much easier and better than this. And when I finally come to the place and they say, God, is there something wrong in my heart or my attitude? Is there something hindering me from you? I cannot think of a single time where God has not answered that prayer. And I also cannot think of a single time where I really liked his answer. <laughs> is there anything in my heart is there anything in my life that is keeping me from growing in Christ-likeness? That is keeping me from producing the fruit of the Spirit in my life? You know, my, my prayer for myself and also my prayer for you as your pastor is that we would grow in Christ-likeness. That we would grow into maturity. That we would grow to be a fruitful people. And when we talk about the fruit that we want to see manifesting in our lives, it is no doubt the fruit of the Spirit that Paul speaks of in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. All things that we see in abundance in Southern California, right? You see a lot of patience in Southern California? How about self-control? How about goodness and faithfulness and gentleness? You see a lot of that sort of stuff? No, we don't see a lot of that sort of stuff. But it ought to be seen in me. If we're going to see it anywhere in San Diego County, it should be seen in the church. These are the identifiable marks of a person who knows God, not knows about God, of a person who knows God. How do I know that you know Jesus? How do I know that you actually do have a relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? It is that you begin to display this fruit in your life. Peter says it like this, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. Again, the fruits of the spirit are listed here. Add to your faith these things, for if these things are yours and they abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that you know Jesus? To an increasing degree, by the enabling power of the indwelling spirit, I should see in you and you should see in me the increase of love and joy and patience, 
kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things that people should see. Now, for a very long time in Protestant Christianity in America that has predominantly a view of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, the marks that people often look for are the gifts of the Spirit. And those are important. Those are helpful. But a lot of times we say that person's mature because, man, they speak in tongues or, man, they got a gift of prophecy or they seem to have a gift of the word of knowledge. Listen, all those things are good and all those things are valuable. And I think that God still uses those things in his church today. But the marks of a person that knows Christ, the greatest of these is love. Because you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, and you are a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And you could have all faith such that you could remove mountains, but if you have not love, you are nothing. That means that people can manifest spiritual giftedness and be very far from God. But if you're not walking in step with God, it'll be clear you will be an impatient person. You will lack control. You will lack faith and goodness and kindness and love. You will be without joy. So God help us. Israel's long path toward destruction began with a series of compromises. And first among these was they did not seek the Lord in prayer. When they started to fail against their enemies, when the Canaanites were determined to stay in the land and the Perizzites refused to move along, what should they have done? Put them under tribute, right? Ah, just let them stay. It's okay. No, maybe they should have gone to the Lord and say, Lord, is there something we ought to be doing differently in this situation or that? They stopped seeking the Lord's guidance for his direction. They stopped seeking his guidance and his protection. They did not obey the Lord's command to subdue the land fully. They allowed their enemies to remain. They dwelt among their enemies and tried to make their enemies work for them. Well, look at Judges chapter two, verse one. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. As chapter two goes on, and I shared a little bit of it with you last week, the Canaanites whom the children of Israel allowed to remain in the land among them drew the children of Israel away from the one true God to their idols. Look at Judges chapter two, verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. The Baals were the chief God of the Canaanites. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed the gods from among the gods of the people who were round about them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. If anything is clear in considering the story of Israel here in the book of Judges, it is point number five. Any sin that is allowed to remain will inevitably become a snare. Any sin that is allowed to remain in my life, just as it was allowed to remain in the children, among the children of Israel there in the land of Canaan, it will become a snare. And not only will it become a trap or a snare to us, and this is frightening and it should be sobering, it invites and arouses the anger of God. One small point. Take careful note of this. It is unwise to anger God. Judges chapter two, verse 13. They forsook the Lord and they served Baal and Asherah. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunders who dis- plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. So they could no longer stand before their enemies. And whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. Note those words in verse 15, as the Lord had said. He told them this is exactly what would happen. In in Exodus, he told them. Again, in Numbers, he told them. In Deuteronomy, he reiterated again. 
Israel's calamity that they will experience in the book of Judges that we will go through over the next several months, it was predicted. God told them this is exactly what would happen. Deuteronomy chapter 28 makes it very clear. It was promised, if you serve their gods, Exodus chapter 23, verse 33, if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. That's a promise. Their calamity was predicted, it was promised. Therefore, it was expected, and this is the hard one, it was avoidable. They didn't have to experience this. Now, I think we should be thankful. All these things were recorded and written so that we could learn from them. Isn't it so much better to learn from the mistakes of somebody else and not have to experience it yourself? But oh, how many times do we find ourselves having to experience it ourselves? All these things were written for our instruction for those of us who are living in this day and age. These things may seem thousands of years away and many hundreds of miles, thousands of miles from us, so why should we study these things? Because all these things were written for our instruction that we would learn from them. Therefore, be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. Their calamity was predicted, it was promised, it was expected, and it was avoidable. The anger of the Lord was against them. Now, one final observation and I'll close. We read here that the hand of the Lord was against the children of Israel. His anger was aroused against them. Over the years, I've had more than a few conversations with people who are not yet Christians or maybe once walked with the church or were a part of the church and have left and they've done what now people call deconstructing, what one pastimes they'd call losing their faith, but they're no longer walking with Jesus. And, and I've had people tell me who are in that place, they have rejected the God of the Bible, they've rejected the God of Abraham because... I can't serve a God who's angry and vengeful and punishes people. Maybe you've run into that. I certainly have had that conversation more than a few times. And on that point, I, I want to say that a distant God who does not judge is an impersonal and unloving God. It is the God of the deist, the God who's far off somewhere beyond the universe and is uninterested in these things. He is uninvolved, unengaged, apathetic, impotent, ignorant, and he cannot and does not save. But a personal God, as God is revealed in the scriptures, a personal God who loves cannot not punish. The author of the New Testament book of Hebrews understood this. In Hebrews chapter 12, he writes, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as children, as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nobody's discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not chasten? But if you are without punishment, without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. God chastens, punishes those he loves. If you experience the chastening of the Lord, it's because God loves you. Second thing to consider about this punishment of the Lord. When you look at the scriptures and consider the concept of the punishment or the vengeance of God, which is a frightening thing to consider, I think there are at least two kinds of punishment from God. One is what we would call active punishment. It is what you see when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, or the city is destroyed with a flood, or Egypt is taken out by the plagues of Egypt. That is the active judgment of God. It is what the prophets in the Old Testament would call a day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is any time where God intervenes in the realm of man for judgment. That is the day of the Lord. And the Bible pictures a great and terrible day of the Lord that will one day come. But there are times in history, the Bible shows us a few here and there, where with the flood or with Sodom and Gomorrah or the plagues of Egypt, where God actively punishes a people. And thankfully, those are relatively frequent, infrequent, and short. The day of the Lord is short. That's a good thing to know. It is a day of the Lord and not like a century of the Lord. Thank God. It is a moment where God intervenes in the realm of man for judgment. But there's another kind of judgment, and I would call it the passive judgment of God. And this is where God steps back 
and allows you to reap the fruit, the consequences of your sinful actions. And in this case, I think it is observably true that the United States is experiencing the punishment of God. Not his direct and active punishment, but his passive judgment where he steps back and says, I'm going to let you do it on your own. And we see the result. What do you say to someone that's in that place? Well, God said to Israel when they were in that place through Isaiah, behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. I don't think God can affirmatively answer the prayer, God bless America at this moment. And that's not only true for America. There are many places where the rejection of God has invited the passive judgment of God. What, what ought we do? Well, the prophet Joel says, now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your heart and not your clothing, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? The scripture makes very, very clear. Faith plus obedience results in victory and blessing. But it also makes very, very clear that disobedience, compromise, and rebellion brings defeat and cursing. The path to faithfulness is to return to God in faithful, prayerful pursuit, seeking him. And, and when you do this, the most awesome thing happens. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to pardon, forgive, and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That, that cleansing is, is a pruning work where God removes from us the, the dead branches of our lives that we might bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, those kind of things. But God has to come and sometimes clear away all that other stuff. He has to prune and to cleanse if you confess your sins. What does that word confess mean? It, it comes from a Greek compound word, homo logeo. Homo, same, logeo, to say the same thing as. It's when you come to God, not with excuses, well, you know, I, I didn't have self-control because that person is such a jerk and they deserve my anger and wrath. And you make excuses and God says, no, that's not confession. <laughs> confession is when you come and say, regardless of what that person did, said, or didn't do, I sinned. My anger was sin. God, would you pardon and forgive me? He's faithful and just to do that. And he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Twenty-five years ago this month, my good friend, Pastor Tony, who's here somewhere, there he is, Pastor Tony, he asked me, actually, it was the last week of January, 1999, he said, I would like you to teach the junior high ministry. And I really wanted to say no. So I, I gave a Christian no. I said, I'll pray about it. Just like many of you do when we say, we really need your help to serve. We're going to add a third service. And you say, I'll pray about it. And you sit on your hands and please don't ask me again. I'll pray about it. So, but I respected Tony. who's my friend. He was my mentor. And I, so I actually went home and I prayed about it. I didn't want to do it. And God spoke to me through a passage of scripture. And I don't say God spoke to me very frequently. There's maybe five times in my life where I can look back and say, the Lord spoke to me. He spoke to me in the passage of scripture that I was reading from at that point in time, which is the primary way that God speaks through his word. I was in 1 Samuel chapter 12, and I read this. The context was, I prayed, God, Tony wants me to teach. I don't want to do it. Give me a reason how I can get out of it. Something like that. I don't remember the prayer, but it was probably something like that. Show me something in your word. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23 is what God spoke. Moreover, as for me, Samuel said to the children of Israel, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. And here's what he said. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all of your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your nation. 
your king. So 25 years ago this month, I prayed and God said, I want you to teach and preach my word and pray for people and this is what I want you to teach them. Only fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth for consider what great things he's done for you and if you don't, you'll be swept away. It's not always the message we want to preach. But that passage says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to do it. So I'll continue to do it until he says, all right, you're done. And he hasn't yet, although I've asked him to a couple times. <laughs> there is no hope for us individually or corporately as a church or as a nation without a return to God in repentance and faith. Oh, God, help us. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? God, we do need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit to enable and empower us to be lights in a dark world and salt to a distasteful culture. God, would you move in us by your spirit. First, give us the desire because you work in us to desire and to do your good pleasure. And maybe we don't even yet have the desire to do it because we're fearful or anxious or whatever it may be. God, would you stir in us a desire to shine brightly as lights, not our own light, but reflecting your light the light of your grace and truth to the people of this world. God, I don't think there's any person here at this moment or even within 10 miles of this building that would like to see cursing and destruction. None of us want to see that. We would love to see blessing and victory. God, would you lead us in the path towards those things? Direct our steps, do work in our hearts, renew our minds by your word, and transform our lives so that we bear fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Make those things abound in my life and the lives of my brothers and sisters here, we pray. We ask this today in Jesus' name.